Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Once again, this is a very special episode, one of those episodes where you get in your podcast what we actually had in person during one of our events. In this case, you have the audio file of the incredible lecture that Professor Christopher Kayser recently gave at the University Catholic Center here at UC Austin for an event co-sponsored with the Austin Institute. We talked about the irreconcilable differences that we have on the issue of abortion, and Professor Kayser also answered the question to the public, so you'll get all that content now as you listen. What I would like to do is to introduce the amazing speaker we have to you right now, Professor Kayser, who was already invited to our podcast presenting his latest book, He is a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University and has a rather impressive CV. Wrote more than 100 scholarly papers and 15, almost 16 books, as far as I know. He was a corresponding member of the Pontifical Academy for Life of Vatican City and is a fellow of the Word of Fire Institute and winner of a Templeton grant. And since this episode is already long in itself, let me just stop here and again, enjoy. Thank you very much. Uh, when I received the invitation to speak here, I was uh, delighted and very happy to connect with, with old friends and see a beautiful campus and speak about such an important issue. And it reminds me of a time where I received another email from the Vatican. And it was an email saying, would you like to have an audience with the Pope? And I thought, wow, yeah, that sounds great, sure. And I write back, I say, yes, I would be, would be happy to. But there's different kinds of audiences, right? You can have an audience with the Pope where it's the Pope and, you know, a thousand people and you're in the back row and you see a little guy in white in the front and, you, you know, you can barely see him. And they said, no, no, this is a personal audience. You'll get to, you know, shake his hand. You'll get to talk to him a little bit. And I thought, well, this is, this is terrific. So if you had a chance to fly to Rome and talk to the Pope, right, what would you say? You don't have 20 minutes to talk to him, obviously. You've got to make a good first impression. And so I start to think, what am I going to say to the Pope? I want it to be something, you know, meaningful. I want it to be something that will maybe strike up a little conversation. So I thought a long time, and I thought, okay, what I'll say is, um, Holy Father, would you please pray for my family and my university? And I thought, well, maybe the Pope will say, well, tell me about your family or what, what university is it? And so it was all planned out. And so I'm in the line waiting to see the Pope, right? And the person in front of me shakes the Pope's hand and they're talking and having this great exchange. And, and then the guy moves away. And here it is, my big chance. So I step forward. He looks just like he does in the pictures. That's the first thing I thought. And I stuck out my hand and I said, nice to meet you. That's it. <laughs> no, no question, no dialogue, nothing. Um, so I, I kind of failed in that. But anyway, I'm hoping today that I will not totally fail and say something meaningful and something important about the topic for today. Now, I remember very clearly my very first conversation about abortion. I was in fourth grade, and I was with a fifth grader named Kenan McDonald. And Kenan was the sixth of uh, six kids, And so I don't know how we got on this topic, but suddenly we started talking about abortion. And I don't know why, but for whatever reason, I kind of took the pro-life side and he took the pro-choice side. And he said to me, so hold on, Chris, are you telling me 
that one tiny dot at the end of a period, an embryo that size that has just one single cell is equal to you? And I thought about it and I thought, well, that, that doesn't seem right. That seems kind of crazy. So I said, well, well, no, I mean, not, not just one single tiny one-celled thing. No, uh, no. He said, all right, well, you know, what about two or three or four or five cells? I mean, you're telling me five-celled little clump of that is equal to you or me or, or somebody else? And thought about that for a while. I thought, well, no, that doesn't seem right either. So no, no, I guess not. And he said, well, look, that's what abortion is. It's just removing just a kind of clump of cells that really is not equal to, to you or me at all. So that was the very first conversation I ever had about this topic. And after that conversation, I thought about it. And I just didn't know quite what to think. It seemed like a pretty strong argument, argument to me. So obviously, I've thought about it a lot since that time. So what I'd like to share with you today are some of the things that I've learned about this topic that might hopefully be of interest and, and helpful to you. The first thing I've learned is that abortion really is not about some of the irreconcilable differences that some people think it's about. So for instance, some people think that it really boils down to politics. But you might be surprised to learn that the Pew Research Center recently uh, did an analysis. And what they found is this, that approximately one-third of registered Republicans disagree with the Republican Party platform on abortion. And the same research found that approximately one-third of registered Democrats disagree with the Democratic Party platform on abortion. So even though it is true that one political party supports legalized abortion more than the other, it is not true for every individual Democrat by any shot. A second thing you might think is that people of faith are against abortion, but atheists uh, are in favor of abortion. But that also is not true. Let me share with you perhaps the most popular argument in the philosophical literature against abortion. It's by a philosopher from the University of Kansas named Don Marcus. And what he says is this, he's an atheist. He says, look, what makes it wrong to kill you or me? Well, it's not wrong to kill you or me because it takes away our past, right? Our past is our past and no one that does anything to us now can change that. But what makes it wrong to kill you or me is that if you kill me today, or if I kill you today, what happens is you lose out on your potentially valuable future, right? So if I got killed today, that would mean I wouldn't be able to see my wife and kids again. I wouldn't be able to see my grandchildren if I'm blessed to have grandchildren. I wouldn't be able to teach my students anymore. I wouldn't be able to have the friendships that I have. I won't be able to learn new things that I would have learned if I hadn't been killed. So the idea is the reason it's wrong to kill me or to kill you is that killing you takes away your potentially valuable future. But the same thing is true of killing a human newborn. And the same thing is true of killing a human being in utero. Right? If you kill him or her, you are taking away their potentially valuable future. And he's not the only atheist who has pro-life views. Another very famous case is Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who was the founder of the National Abortion Rights Action League. He became pro-life in the 70s when he was an atheist as a result of viewing ultrasound photos of the human being in utero. And as an atheist, he came to the conclusion that he could no longer continue to perform abortions. So it's a mistaken presupposition to think, well, you have pro-life religious people on one side and you have atheistic 
pro-choice people on the other side. The fact is that people of all faiths and people of no faith at all, atheists, can come to the conclusion that the human being in utero deserves to be protected by law and welcomed in life. Another kind of distinction that some people think is an irreconcilable difference in terms of abortion would be whether you're liberal or conservative. But this too is a false way of thinking about it because in fact, there are some liberal people that are in favor of animal rights that are very progressive on many, many different issues. I'm thinking here of people like Charles Camozzi at Fordham University, who nevertheless are very strongly for life. And on the other side, you have some conservative libertarian types who are very conservative in all kinds of ways, but who would still describe themselves as in favor of abortion. So the liberal conservative divide also doesn't work. In fact, in the United States, it's pro-life people that are the liberals and pro-choice people that are the conservatives. After all, it's the pro-choice people who want to conserve the current status quo about abortion in the United States, where you have Roe versus Wade and you have abortion legalized, et cetera, et cetera. They're the ones who want to preserve and conserve the status quo. So those are all ways in which we might mistakenly think that we have irreconcilable differences. And the final one I'll mention is men versus women. So the stereotype is, well, men are pro-life and women are pro-choice. But the research is much more complex than that simple dichotomy. In fact, women on average are more pro-life than men. And when you have people say, oh, men shouldn't have anything to say about abortion, those same people seem to have no problem with the Supreme Court in 1973 in which seven men decided that abortion should be legal. So there's kind of inconsistency that men are never supposed to talk about abortion, and yet they're not against that Supreme Court case that was decided by seven men. So there are, though, to move on to my second kind of point, there are some situations in which there are at least potentially irreconcilable differences that arise in terms of science. So what I mean here is this. Um, there, the pro-life view depends upon the reality, the scientific facts that biologists know about the beginning of human life. There was a recent dissertation at the University of Chicago that found after extensive surveys, more than 5,000 biologists, 96% of them affirmed the idea that human life begins at conception. Not all, but almost all, 96%. And the fact is that there is really no issue at all with the idea of human life beginning in this sort of way. If I go back to the question that my friend Kinnan asked me when I was in fourth grade and I was so flummoxed by, I couldn't think, figure it out. Well, later when I read the biological literature, it, I did figure out a, a good answer to that challenge that he raised. So we all know from science that there are, in fact, one-celled organisms, right? Anyone who studied biology knows there's such a thing as organisms that have one cell. And we know from biology too that if you have a human father and a human mother that do a reproductive act, the only possible species that could arise from the union of a human father and a human mother would be a human organism, a human child, a human offspring. It's biologically impossible that a human father and mother could come together and perform a reproductive act and what they reproduce is a zebra or a dog or a fish or a cow or a tree or anything else. And when we consider the human zygote and the human fetus and the human newborn and the human child in a biological sense, there is no evidence whatsoever that any of these could be anything other than human. 
We're talking about human DNA. We're talking about human cells. We're talking about a human trajectory of growth. The only possible species that this being could belong to is the human species. Now, some people, not all, but some people on the pro-choice side wanted to be deniers of this science. They are in science denial. And when you ask them, well, when do you think human life begins? They say things like, oh, that's above my pay grade. That's above my pay grade. I just don't know. I have no idea. All of a sudden, they become rubes that seem to have no scientific background or education whatsoever. Well, I think the evidence is in. The evidence is very clear. When you get 96% of biologists saying that human life begins at conception, I'm not sure how much more of a scientific consensus you would want. And it's odd that some of these same people will say um, that there's no consensus about the beginning of human life, but when 96% of scientists say something about climate change, well, that's absolutely definitive, and anyone who questions that is a rube and a science denier. A second area in which I think there could potentially be irreconcilable differences would be the conception of happiness that people are operating with in the background in these disputes. So here I'm drawing on the work of Robert Spitzer in a great book he wrote called Healing the Culture. And what he says is that there's four different kinds of happiness. The first, what he calls level one happiness, is bodily pleasure. It's the kind of happiness you can get from eating an ice cream cone, eating a good meal, having sex, taking drugs, drinking alcohol. The second kind of happiness is a kind of happiness that's based on competition with others and being better than others. So for instance, if you're richer than others, you might have this kind of level two happiness. If you're more powerful than others, you might have level two happiness. If you're more famous than others, it's a sort of competitive happiness where you, know, you look at how much wealth or power or status or whatever this other person has, and you're happy if you beat that person and you're miserable if you don't beat that person. Then Spitzer talks about level three happiness. And level three happiness is the happiness that we can get from loving and serving and helping others. And finally, he talks about level four happiness. And level four happiness has to do with loving others and also loving God. Now, I think at least implicitly, at least sometimes in the debates about abortion, these different levels of happiness are operative and they inform the way people think about the value of a human being. So you could think about the value of any human being from a level one perspective. And if you do, what you'd say is this, if you're a human being and you're not experiencing bodily pleasure, in fact, you're say in pain at the end of life, well, your life is worthless. Your life is meaningless. You're just, you know, you might as well die. You're better off dead, right? And let's say you're at the beginning of life and at the very beginning of life, human beings don't yet have the capacity to experience pleasure and pain. Well, you might say the same thing. Your life is worthless, it's meaningless. You only begin to count as a moral subject when you are sentient, when you're able to experience pain and pleasure, right? So this would be the view of someone like Peter Singer, who would say that an animal, a dog, say, would have, uh, would have some moral status because a dog can suffer, but say a human child in utero, in the beginning of pregnancy at least, because it cannot yet suffer, would have no moral status. So that's a kind of level one sort of view. And it's also a kind of level one sort of view where you say, if I have a child right now, this is gonna interfere with my maximizing my pleasure and minimizing my pain, so I'm not going to. And then what about the level two view? Well, the level two view can inform advocacy for abortion also. You say things like, I can't afford to have another child. You say things like, this is gonna get in the way of my career. You say things like, this is gonna get away in the way of me being famous and powerful and influential and have high status, et cetera. So 
implicit there is, again, the idea that the most important thing for human beings to pursue would be, say, money, power, status, and anything whatsoever that gets in the way of your pursuit of those things is an obstacle that you just have to remove. You just got to get rid of it. Now, if you think about the point of human life, not as level one happiness, not as level two happiness, but rather as level three happiness, well, then you come to a very different conclusion. Because from a level three perspective, the fact that some human being is vulnerable or is sick or is dependent or is needy is no reason to get rid of them, but that's actually a good reason to help them. Because from a level three perspective, helping other people is the very point of life. And so the fact that an elderly person is very sick or needing help or a human being in utero is very vulnerable and dependent, that doesn't count against them from a level three perspective. And level four is similar. It would be just like level three in terms of the goal of helping others. But in addition, you have the goal of not only loving others and serving others, but also loving and serving God. So from a level four perspective, what you'd say is, not only ought I to help this human being in need, but in helping this human being in need, what I'm doing is really loving and serving God. And for Christians, it's even more powerful because Christians believe that when we come across someone who is hungry or thirsty or naked, that is Jesus in disguise. So from a level four Christian perspective, the more needy someone is, the more needy a human being is, in a sense, the greater our obligation to care for, to love, to help, to support that person. So I think that this view, these views of happiness and the corresponding views of the human person are sometimes at least behind the debate between pro-life and pro-choice. Now I wanna talk a little bit about areas where there is certainly irreconcilable differences between the pro-life view and the pro-choice view. And the first of those would be, what is the moral status of the human being in utero? And the pro-life view would be that all human beings, regardless of age, race, regardless of location, regardless of their health, regardless of anything whatsoever, deserve respect, have basic rights. The pro-life view is that nobody is a nobody, that everyone counts. And part of the reason pro-life people have come to this conclusion is when we think back in history and we look at all the times in which we've divided the human family into two groups, those that have basic rights and those that don't, every single time we've done this, we've made a horrible mistake, right? Think about slavery, right? You say, well, if you're like me and you're white, well, then you have rights, we can't enslave you. But if you're not like me and you're black, oh, well, you're a slave. Right? Or if you're like me and you're a man, you have basic rights and dignity. But if you're a woman, well, no, you're kind of property of somebody else. Right? We've done this mistake many times before. And every time we've ever done this, we've made a terrible moral mistake. So the pro-life view says that every single human being, regardless of any characteristic you can think of, deserves the protection of the law and deserves to be welcomed in life. The pro-choice view disagrees. And there are a bunch of different kinds of pro-choice views, and they vary on what is the necessary characteristic you need in order to gain the status of being a full moral creature. So some hold that it has to be implantation. Others hold it's when the human being in utero begins to have sentience. 
Others hold it's when the human being in utero is viable. Others hold that a prenatal human being only gains moral and status at birth. Others hold that you only gain status after birth. So there's a series of philosophers, a number of them, who hold that even when the baby is born, still the child in question doesn't yet have basic rights. And so if the parents decide after birth that they you know, don't want to be parents, that it's too hard for them, that whatever, then the parents should have the right to terminate the life of that child. Now, what exactly, when is the end date? So for the people I'm thinking of, what they say is, when the child is self-aware, that's when the child really gains basic rights. The idea is that when you were born, in fact, you, properly speaking, weren't born. What was born is the vehicle that you inhabit. It's the body you make use of. So you, according to them, you arise when you're self-aware. And how do you know when a child is self-aware? Well, one famous test of that is that you put a dot on a child's head and you put a mirror in a room. And for little children, like dogs, when they see themselves in the mirror, they think it's another child. Just like a dog might see a dog in a mirror and start barking and think it's a dog that's about to attack. So little children, one-year-olds, they literally think it's another child. They have no clue it's them. But on average, around the age of two, that's when if you put a dot on a child's head and the child looks in a mirror, the child goes like this. Like, oh, wh wh why is there this dot on my head? That's weird, right? So basically on average for human beings, it starts around the age of two. So according to their view, since you have no rights until you're self-aware, and you desire to continue living, the human right to live would begin around, on average, the age of two. Unless, of course, you have mental disabilities. You, know, you might be somebody who's slow, right? Like some children talk late and they don't talk till four or five. So if you have some mental uh, handicap, you might actually gain the right to life three, four, or five, who knows? But on average, it would be around the age of two. Now, that's one irreconcilable difference, I think, between the pro-life view and the pro-choice view of various kinds, and that would be the pro-life view is inclusive. We say everybody counts. We say everybody deserves protection. We say everybody should be loved. Everybody should be welcomed. Everybody deserves to be treated like a human being. A second irreconcilable difference, I think, between the pro-life side and the pro-choice side would be whether the woman's bodily autonomy also includes the right to an abortion. Now, pro-life people totally accept the idea that women have bodily autonomy, just as men do. And so obviously, neither men nor women should be enslaved, neither men nor women in general should be forced to do things. But we do recognize that bodily autom autonomy is limited. And so do, in general, about other issues, pro-choice people. So we have all kinds of laws that limit how we use our body, right? We're not allowed to walk around naked we're not allowed to take meth. Uh, we're not allowed to do, we are forced by law to file tax returns. There's lots of ways in which the government and certainly morality uh, impose duties on us to use our body. But the main way is that I ought never to use my body in such a way that I deliberately inflict harm, especially lethal harm, on somebody else's body. So I'm free to wave my hands around as much as I want, but if I start slapping people around, well, that's a totally different thing because then there are two bodies involved. So then the question is, are there two bodies involved in the case of abortion? And I think that all the available scientific evidence says that there are at least two bodies involved. 
Why? Well, pregnant women don't have two heads. Pregnant women don't have four arms. There are two living human beings involved in this case, at least two. Now, if a woman is carrying twins, there'd be three. She's carrying, you know, et cetera. But there's at least two if there's a case of pregnancy. So the pro-life view would be that, yes, of course, women have bodily autonomy. Of course they do. But their bodily autonomy is limited the same way my bodily autonomy is limited, the same way anyone's bodily autonomy is limited. That is to say, I may not use my own body in such a way that I inflict lethal harm on another person's body. So those, I think, are irreconcilable differences. What can we do about it? Well, you may be aware of this research on marriage that says that married couples always have irreconcilable differences. This is happily married couples have irreconcilable differences. Couples that are miserable have irreconcilable differences. Couples that are getting divorced have them. All couples have it. And they could be over politics. They could be over religion. They could be over where to live, how many kids to have. It could be anything. But all couples have them. So what's the difference between happily married couples and miserable couples? Well, it's not having those differences. So what do the psychologists, the marriage, psycho marriage psychologists, people like John Gottman I'm thinking of from the University of Washington, what do they recommend? Well, what they say is this. If you have irreconcilable differences, that means that in all likelihood, you're not going to change them to have your view. But what you can do is you can eliminate one problem that you have in addition to the irreconcilable difference. And that would be the problem of misunderstanding the other person. So I think when we're talking about the issue of abortion, we're going to have irreconcilable differences with people. And one thing that's been incredibly fruitful for me is to learn from those people. And I've been very fortunate that I've learned a ton from those sorts of people. So I mentioned my friend Kenan, I learned from him. I also mentioned, I could mention my roommate from college. So we lived together for two years and next door for another year. And he's strongly pro-choice. I was strongly pro-life. And I learned a ton from discussing things with him. And then more recently, I have a friend named David Boonin, who is a philosophy professor at UC Boulder. And he wrote a book called A Defense of Abortion. And I think it's the very best philosophical defense of abortion. But when I wrote my book, it was sent to him. And he sent back 23 single-spaced type pages of critique and response and analysis that helped my book just tremendously. And because I took all his criticisms very seriously. And when you listen to someone carefully, that is itself a service to them. And it is actually a service to the God of love. At least if we think we're supposed to love others, loving others can begin with giving them one of our most valuable resources. And it's a scarce resource. And that is our full attention. When we give someone our full attention, we're giving them something very important. And so one way to make a big difference in terms of this whole discussion and debate is to listen carefully and try to really understand, even if at the end of the day you don't agree with it, to really understand where someone's coming from and to ask them questions. How did you come to this conclusion that viability is the key point that changes a human being that doesn't have moral status to a human being that does. How did you come to that conclusion? I'm thinking about asking questions, open questions, asking questions that show a genuine interest in the other person, questions that really show a respect for the other person. Because 
one other division that we might like to do is to say, well, people on my side are the good people and people on the other side are the bad people. And I think if we think that way, we can make a huge, huge mistake because I'm convinced that there are some people who see this issue and other issues radically different than me that nevertheless, in some fundamental ways, are still good people. And if we treat people like that, I think actually it may be advantageous for us in terms of having harmony with others, learning from others, and actually growing. So we may feel that the irreconcilable differences in the abortion debate are kind of hopeless, right? We're never gonna make progress. We're gonna be stuck here forever. But I actually think that that's a reasonable feeling to have. When you think about how long abortion's been legal in the United States, it's almost 50 years, right? 1973, that's a long time ago. But I wanna remind you that slavery was legal in the United States for almost 350 years. The first slave was brought to what is now North Carolina in 1526. And then slavery wasn't abolished legally in the United States until the 13th Amendment after the Civil War. So you're talking about almost 350 years in which slavery was legal. But there were people in this country and in England, I'm thinking of people like William Wilberforce, who fought tirelessly, despite the odds, despite this long history of legalized slavery, he worked tirelessly to change minds. And I think that we are called to the same sort of thing, that we're called to try our best, to dialogue with others, to listen carefully to what others say, because after all, how could you possibly um, convince someone that they're mistaken unless you know exactly why they hold their view? It seems to me very, very difficult, if not impossible. And so I wanna conclude with a note of hope that in fact, over the course of the last 20, 25 years, the number of people that describe themselves as pro-life has steadily grown. That younger people are more likely than older people to describe themselves as pro-life. That millions and millions of people, including myself, have benefited from the care that people give to women in crisis pregnancies. And that's how I got here, right? My mother had a crisis pregnancy. 1968, California, abortion was legal. But people reached out to her, people loved her, people helped her. And so she went up to Spokane and the good nuns up there that ran the orphanage took care of me at the beginning of my life. And then I was very blessed to be uh, adopted by the Kayser family. And this is a story that has been repeated over and over again. So in our effort to protect all human beings in law and welcome all human beings in life, the rhetoric and the irreconcilable differences are part of it, but probably the bigger part of it is the personal aid and concern and love that we give to people in need. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Kayser. I'm a voice out of the picture and I see you're, the camera is gonna be on you still, but I just wanted to thank you and sure. to welcome Father Raya. I saw he arrived and I think we are open now for some Q&A and yeah. questions from 
from the audience here, from the audience online, and I think the, the questions can be there. In case we have questions from the public, I would ask you to repeat them. Sure. Yeah, I'd be happy to, um, to answer yeah, any questions have, uh, anyone may have. We don't have other microphones. Uh, yes, sir. The question was, what is the title of the book you were mentioning earlier? Uh, oh, the, so I wrote a book called The Ethics of Abortion, uh, hum, or Women's Rights, Human Life, and the Question of Justice. And in that book, what I tried to do is examine, to the best of my ability, all the strongest philosophical uh, arguments in favor of abortion. And then the book is based simply on reason alone. So there's no faith-based arguments, there's no appeal to religious authority, there's no you know, Bible verses cited. It is an attempt to simply using reason to show, which I think is true, that any person of goodwill with any kind of faith or no faith could come to the conclusion that we ought to love and protect all human beings, including human beings at the very beginning of their life. So that's the name of the book, The Ethics of Abortion, women's rights, human life, and the question of justice. Uh, yes. Yeah, thank you for your question. So just to repeat it, um, I'm not sure I'll be able to repeat it verbatim, but the question was, uh, what about this analogy where your responsibility for a vulnerable person goes up when you're the only one who can relieve the vulnerable person and your responsibility would go down if there were a number of people who could relieve the vulnerable person. So the example was, if you, uh, you know how to do the Heimlich maneuver and you're at a restaurant and there's five other people there that also know how to do, also know how to do the Heimlich maneuver, it seems to be the case that if, if I start choking and there's five people or six people that could save me, the individual responsibility of each person is lessened because there's five other people there that could fill in for the person who doesn't want to do it or can't do it. Whereas if you invite someone over to your house and it's just you alone with the person who's choking, and there's no one else around that can save them, it seems like you have a heightened responsibility to care for the person who's vulnerable and choking. Um, yes, I think that's correct. And I would add that uh, biological fathers and biological mothers have an extra incentive and reason and obligation to care for their own vulnerable, dependent minor children. So it would be very nice if I were to meet some, you know, nice college student here and say, hi, hey, I'm gonna, you know, pay for your tuition. I'll buy your books. That'd be super generous of me. But for me to do that for my own kids is not being like incredibly generous. It's just being a normal dad. 
And in particular, if you're talking about a child who is below 18, a vulnerable minor, both biological fathers and biological mothers have a very serious obligation to ensure that their own children are properly taken care of. Thank you. Other questions? Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so the question is, what is your response to the violinist argument? Uh, there's a professor from MIT who actually just recently died named Judith Jarvis Thompson, and she wrote a very famous article called A Defensive Abortion. And in that article, she likened abortion to the following scenario. Imagine that tomorrow morning you wake up in the hospital and you look over and you find yourself connected by various tubes to this young girl. She's like a 12-year-old girl. And you look over and like, well, how, what happened here? And the doctor walks in and said, I'm you know, sorry to break the news to you, uh, but this is you know, so-and-so, Elizabeth, the famous violinist. And she has a terrible kidney problem. And the only way we can save her is to attach her to you. So you know, I'm sorry about this, but you're going to have to remain attached to Elizabeth for the next nine months. And after nine months, we, we estimate her kidney function will return and she should be fine after nine months. But for the next nine months, you're stuck attached to Elizabeth, the famous violinist. And after all, violinists have right to live, right? Just like anybody else. And so you can't detach yourself. And so Thompson said that a woman with an unwanted pregnancy is in a similar situation. She said, let's, for the sake of argument, assume that the human being in utero is a person, has as much rights as you or me. And then she said, look, in the case of the violinist, it would be morally permissible to detach yourself from the violinist and allow the violinist to die. You'd be a good Samaritan, you'd be very generous, it'd be great if you want to, stay attached for nine months, but you're under no obligation. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just going above and beyond the call of duty if you allow yourself to remain hooked up to the violinist. Now, how would I respond to Thompson's famous violinist argument? I would say that there's very significant differences between the case of abortion and the case of the violinist. Um, the first would be that a mother or a father has very serious moral responsibilities to help their own biological children. Whereas if I get hooked up to some strange violinist, I don't have any special obligation just to help you know, strange violinists that I'm, you know, that I'm not the father of. So it'd be nice if I would, but that's a different thing. The second thing is that there's an enormous difference between letting die and intentionally killing. So in the case of the violinist, the idea is that you snip the cords that connect you and the poor violinist ends up dying of her own underlying condition. But the way abortions are actually performed, it is not the case that the umbilical cord is cut and the, you know, the prenatal human being just dies of its own accord. What happens in the case of actual abortions, it depends on the method, but there is a direct intentional attack on the body of the prenatal human being. So that is radically different than the case of uh, the violinist. Uh, I think there are other reasons too to be skeptical of the violinist argument, but those are two reasons that I find sufficient for, for uh, rejecting the violinist argument. Um, other questions? Yes. I think I, I can, uh, you don't need to repeat this one. But since you mentioned intention, would you, do you think that women who've had abortion 
and who are born in a time and age where abortion is not even an issue, um, I'm not actually killing anything, could be held responsible for having actually murdered or like, or their intention to do evil was actually absent. And so we cannot argue that they actually, that they're guilty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so my view would be that God alone can ultimately and adequately judge anyone's actions, whether it's about abortion or any other action, because God alone adequately and fully understands the human heart. So in general, there's a distinction to be drawn between the objective morality of some action and the subjective culpability of the agent who performs that action. So you can say the action of killing an innocent person is wrong, or the action of stealing is wrong, or the action of um, uh, lying is wrong. And, but then there's a different question of how subjectively culpable is the person. So if you think about killing, it seems to me that there's a range from totally unculpable to fully culpable. So let me describe the range. You could imagine someone who is told by their mother, right, maybe a teenage girl, hey, this is no problem at all. It's just a bunch of cells. The young teenager has no reason to question her mother and maybe just takes it at face value, okay. And so, you know, that person goes in to get an abortion. And I would say that person acted in ignorance. Now, if someone's acting in ignorance, then you have the question, is this culpable ignorance or inculpable ignorance? In other words, culpable ignorance would be you could have known and you should have known that this was wrong. And it's through your own neglect that you didn't look into it enough and you didn't know it was wrong. And that's a question that it seems to me would vary from case to case. I imagine there could be cases where someone is culpably ignorant. They could have known and they should have known that this was wrong and they just were lazy and just didn't look into it. But it seems to me that there are certainly cases where the person couldn't know. So to take an example, let's say you have a mentally handicapped person who someone has sex with them, they're raped and they get pregnant and then the parent gets them to get an abortion. I I don't think a mentally handicapped person could have and should have known about what they're doing because they, if they're mentally handicapped severely, they aren't able to learn much of anything. So I leave all judgment about, you know, personal culpability. And that's not not my, that is above my pay grade. I, I, I don't have access to that. And that's why, at least in the Catholic tradition, when people go to confession, they say what they've done, right? I don't go to confession for my wife and say, hey, Father, let me tell you what my wife did, X, Y, and Z. No, no, I walk in there and I say, you know, I know my wife, I mean, I know my heart better than anyone or at least as well as anybody. So if I go to confession, I say, here's what I did. I knowingly and willingly did X, Y, Z, whatever I did. And so I think that's completely proper, right? Now, there are some very limited contexts in which a judge or a jury may have to look into personal culpability. But outside of those, those legal contexts and the trial and stuff, it seems to me that that's, that's between them and God at the end of the day. I, I can't look into their heart. I can't know what they knowingly and willingly did. And so I, I think my opinion is that there are definitely some people who get abortions who are, their culpability is greatly diminished or even taken away altogether. I, I, I'm convinced that's true. Yes. Thank you for your talk. Um, I have a question. Do you think that the moral 
Pierre. Yeah. Yeah. So, so my view is that all human beings, all deserve basic human rights. And so that means no one should be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And so if you were to just take someone and just execute them or just take away their property or imprison them with no process, with no trial, with no evidence brought, just someone just does it, I would say that would be a human rights violation. Now, obviously, very young human beings are incapable of doing morally good or morally bad actions, right? So like a two-year-old can't break the law. Now, a two-year-old could conceivably kill someone. You can imagine a little baby, little kid getting a gun and shooting somebody. But no jury and no trial, no police officer would arrest a two-year-old who accidentally picked up a gun and shot somebody. So that's indicative of the truth that no two-year-old could justly be deprived of life, liberty, or property because no two-year-old's capable of actions that could justly deprive them of those things. Now, it's different with an adult. So an adult clearly can knowingly and willingly violate the rights of others in a very serious way. And so that's why it is possible, for instance, for an adult who murders someone to be put in jail, right? To be put in prison, even for life. That's it. Why? Well, because we are actually showing respect for the dignity of the person by administering justice. So let me explain what I mean. If a tree just falls over and lands on you, right? We don't put the tree on trial and you know send the tree to jail, right? But if I assault you, well, I might go to jail. I might be tried and found guilty of assault. So what's the difference? The difference is for me, if you convict me of a crime that I'm guilty of, what that is doing is affirming my human freedom. It's saying, in other words, you're not a tree. You're not just a random chaotic thing that just happens. And so in pun a just punishment is an affirmation of the dignity and the value and the distinctly human freedom of the one who gets punished. So I think that just punishments aren't a denial of human rights or human dignity. They're actually an affirmation of human rights and human dignity. Now, this gets us to the death penalty. So is it a violation of the human right to life to uh, try someone in capital punishment or try someone and then administer capital punishment? As you probably know, there's a lively debate in the Catholic tradition about exactly how to uh, interpret that and understand that. My own view is similar to the view of John Paul II. So John Paul II said that the death penalty should not be used unless, unless it is necessary to defend the society that you're in. And his view, which I share, would be that in our society, we can, in fact, adequately protect society from criminals by, say, putting them in prison you know, for life. Now, if we were in a radically different society, let's say this is our society right here, we're on a desert island, all we have is a bamboo little prison, and you know, the bad guy gets out of the bamboo prison all the time and is killing people, 
then it seems to me if as a last resort, as the last way we could possibly defend society, it would be permissible to end the life of that person. So what I'm saying is that on my view, and I think is not just my view, but the view of the Catholic Church, the death penalty is not an intrinsically evil action. That is an action that in no circumstance could ever be morally done. By contrast, both abortion and euthanasia are examples of intrinsically evil actions in which they can never be licitly done. So I would draw that distinction between the abortion, say, and euthanasia on the one hand and the death penalty on the other hand. Yes, sir. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So in, I think the right way to think about this is first to define what exactly is abortion. So I think in Evangelium Vitae, John Paul II provided a very good definition of abortion in which he said it is intentionally killing the human being prior to birth as a means or as an end. So let's imagine that um, my wife gets uterine cancer and she goes to the doctor and the doctor says, oh my gosh, I'm you know, really sorry. Unless you remove this, your uterus right away, the cancer is going to spread and you're going to die. And then she says, oh my gosh, well, I'm pregnant. I'm only you know, eight weeks pregnant. And if I, if I continue the pregnancy and the baby's born, well, the cancer is going to spread all over and I'm going to die. Now, what could she do? Well, the answer of the Catholic tradition is sometimes called double effect reasoning. And basically the answer is she may remove the uterus, even though as an unfortunate side effect, the prenatal human being will die. And the reason for that is she is not intending either as a means or as an end to end the life of that child. She's accepting as an unfortunate side effect of her totally legitimate medical treatment of getting rid of the cancer that the child will die. Likewise, if she decided not to remove the uterus, I mean, to, yeah, not to remove the uterus. If she said, look, I already have breast cancer, I already have brain cancer, uh, you know, I'm not going to make it anyway, so I'd rather continue the pregnancy and at least let my, you know, daughter have a life. That would not be suicide, even though she foresees that in this unfortunate case, the cancer is going to spread and she's going to end up dying. So abortion, that is the intentional killing as a means or as an end, is always impermissible. But a legitimate medical treatment that you would have even if you weren't pregnant, like removing a cancerous uterus, those treatments are permissible even if, as an unfortunate side effect, that prenatal human being ends up dying. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to read a question that we had online. Okay. And it's quite a long question. It comes from another Thomist. Uh-oh. So, Uh-oh. Um, so it comes with an explanation of the question itself. Okay. Is it in English or Latin? It's in English. It's in okay. English for now. Next one will be... Okay. I mean, okay. I could expect that. Um, in the end, how would you respond to your fourth grade friend? Perhaps biologists somehow classify this being as human, but it just seems obvious that a human being is so much more complex than a merely single-celled being. So perhaps there's some technical way in which a zygote is human, but how do you account for your intuitive reaction when you were in fourth grade? And how do you decisively counter that intuitive reaction? And there's a follow-up. A thought experiment follow-up. 
If there were two burning buildings, one had hundreds of frozen human embryos, the other had a single infant already born, which would you choose to save? So, how does one conceive of the dignity of the early stages of human development? All right, well, that's a great question. So, how would I answer my friend Kinnan today if I had a chance to talk to him again? Um, I think what I'd say is that there are three, really three questions involved. The first would be, is this individual living? And if it's a living creature, right, if it's, it's, if it's a, a living zygote, um, well, it's clearly a living thing, right? And there's all kinds of one-celled living organisms, right? Amoebas, all kinds of things. So it's living. Second question is, well, what kind of living thing is this? And all available scientific evidence suggests that this is not a cow embryo, a dog embryo, a chicken embryo. This is a human embryo. It has a human father, it has a human mother. He or she is actually already a he or she. I mean, the characteristics are manifest, but whether you're gonna be male or female is determined at conception. So this is a living individual, this is a human individual. And then the question comes, well, do all living human individuals, or just those that are like me, have basic rights? Do all human beings deserve protection by the law? Or just those that are like me? Do all individual human beings deserve basic protection and respect? And my answer to that is that every time we've ever tried to exclude any class of human beings, we've always made a catastrophic moral mistake. So the intuition though is understandable because obviously a human zygote looks radically different than a human adult. But I think difference in looks or appearance is no basis for denying fundamental human equality, right? I mean, isn't that, at the end, the, the error of the racist, right? Well, you don't look like me, and therefore you, you don't count. I think that's a huge, huge mistake. So how would I answer the burning building scenario? You've got um, a building where there's frozen human embryos, and you could either save you know, the tray of embryos, or you could save one born human being. Well, I think the answer to that is that I would save the one born human being. But that does not show that the human embryos aren't really alive or they're not really human or they're not really worth protecting. It's similar in a way to this. Um, let's imagine you could only save one person. You could save the president or the pope or the prime minister, some world you know, historical figure, or you could save five regular people. Well, I would say that there's a case to be made that you ought to save the pope, prime minister, president, because the death of that sort of person could literally cause a war. It could cause World War III. It could cause unbelievable problems and suffering. Now, that doesn't mean that the Pope or Prime Minister is, has a right to life that's different fundamentally than the five regular people. But what it does mean is that the Pope or Prime Minister or President has a role in the community that is such that extra efforts to save them are worthwhile doing. And again, that's not to deny saving the regular five people. So what I would say is if you've got a born child, you've got a three-year-old or whatever, the fact is, is that that child has a role and a connection to the community that differs from the abandoned frozen embryos that in fact, most of the time, never even get implanted. And a lot of the time when they get implanted, don't even, aren't miscarrying, aren't even able to come to fruition. So the ethics of who to save is a very different thing than the ethics of whether to kill, right? In other words, I would save my own son or daughter 
over 50 people I didn't know. Now, that doesn't mean the 50 people I don't know aren't really people and you can kill them at will. Well, no, it's just I have a special connection and special love and, frankly, a special obligation to my own daughter that I don't have for just 50 strangers. So I think the embryo case is confusing in a way. The uh, who you should save, and in that question, there's legitimate differentiations that you can and need to make in some triage situations about who to save, but that's a totally different question than who is, is okay to kill. And in the case of abortion, that's exactly the question. Who ought to be killed? And that's different than who, who needs to be saved. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the question was that she said that she liked the idea of listening carefully to those with whom we disagree. And then the question was, well, what else can we do? So if we're talking about personal conversations with people, I think the best thing to do often is to ask them questions. And to ask them questions not in the manner of abrasive Socrates, um, where you're you know, going for the jugular and trying to choke them out, and, but asking questions that are more open and hopefully will lead them to greater curiosity about exactly why they hold the views that they have. So I'm thinking of questions like, okay, you say that viability is the key moment when a human being becomes a person that we should respect. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? And listen carefully. And the fact is sometimes when you ask people questions, they themselves figure out after one or two questions that they don't really know what they're talking about, that there's no real basis for their view. Another question that can be asked is, okay, well, you disagree with the pro-life view. You know, I get that. You know, in your view, what would be the strongest argument in favor of the pro-life view? And then, you know, why would you reject that? And again, many times when a person's asked a question like that, they have not thought at all about the other side of the argument. And again, these questions are not meant to corner them or to beat them up or to cause them to cry. The questions are hopefully questions that are legitimate, open questions. And the point of them in part is to arouse in them a kind of curiosity, right? And so they'll start to think, well, why do I think that? And then moreover, if the person's polite, which most people are polite, if you ask them a genuine, open-minded, nice question like that, if most normal people, if they're raised well, will ask you a question, right? They'll say whatever they'll say. Then they'll say, well, why do you think that all human beings deserve to be protected by law and welcomed in life. And then you'd have a chance to respond. And at this point, you're having an actual conversation because you've shown you're very interested in actually hearing what this person thinks and why, and you really have listened, and you might even say, so you're saying your view is X, Y, and Z, and repeat it to them very accurately, as best as you can repeat it to them, so that they know you really do understand what they're saying. And then not always, but often, if they're an open-minded person, they'll say, well, What do you think of that? The thing is, I think dialogue is a win for our side. I really do. I think that the more conversation we have about this, the better. Because I think the pro-life side is unbelievably more powerful than the pro-choice side. I really do. I think the more conversations we can have, and, and especially 
I, I want to say non-confrontational. So I'm not talking about going to an abortion clinic and you're yelling and they're yelling and you know you, they want to punch you and you want to punch them. No, I mean French conversations that are in the context of friendship, where they know that you really care about them. They, you know, they, they know that if uh, they needed help, they could call you and you'd drive them to the dentist, right? You, you're not some adversary, you're not their enemy. Because the problem is once you set up an adversarial enemy kind of situation, they put up their hands, you put up their hands, you know, and the thing is, you know, your pulse goes up, you got the adrenaline shooting through your body. I mean, the likelihood of actually being able to have a fruitful conversation goes way, way, way down. And so we want fruitful conversations, presumably. We want to have a real discussion. And so to do that, I think you need to, as much as possible, turn down the heat, turn down the aggression, turn down the anger. I mean, if you can, to, to not have that be involved. And then hopefully you're calm and you can talk about it in a reasonable way. If they're calm, they talk about it in a reasonable way. You understand where they're coming from better. They maybe understand where you're coming from better. And if that happens, again, I am totally convinced that at the end of the day, a person of goodwill will be able to see the ideas that we've been talking about. I don't think this is ultra complex, like, oh, you have to have a PhD and you know, know all this stuff. I, I honestly don't think it's that complex. It's pretty simple, really. Now, it can become complex if people put up kind of intellectual you know, defenses and barbed wire, but, but I think the actual issue, a five-year-old kid can see this. It's really not that hard. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, it kind of depends. I mean, if you're trying to persuade the person, oh, the question was, is there any time when it's good to turn up the heat and be aggressive and all that? I would say this, if you're trying to persuade someone, no. Because I think when you turn up the heat and go crazy, I think that physiologically their reaction is fight or flight. And once you get really ramped up, you can't even think straight. So I think if you're trying to persuade someone, I don't think that's the right approach. Moreover, I think even if you're debating someone, so let's say I was the pro-life speaker and there's a pro-choice speaker here and we're debating about this. I think even then, it's actually more effective not to turn up the heat and not to say, you know, you're horrible and yell at them and, you know, I think that, I don't think that's, if you're trying to persuade, I don't think that's a good way to go. Now there is, there is something, I would say this though too, there is something that is valuable and important about being honest about the gravity of this issue. And so I do think that a certain gravity, gravitas when you're addressing, because it is a life or death issue. I mean, this is, this is like as serious as issues get in my book. So I do think that that is, in some cases, it's necessary to, to make sure the gravity of the issues is present. But name calling or saying, you know, whatever, attacking the person personally, I, I don't think that's very helpful, at least if you're trying to persuade someone. I was talking about the gravity I'm bringing up. Oh yeah, well, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
Dr. Budashevsky. Yeah, so the question is, when the, the answer I gave to that gentleman was contingent on hypothetical, if you're trying to persuade someone, then poking them in the eye, calling them names, attacking them is counterproductive because they're just going to you know, put up their defenses and it's just not going to be productive. But then the question was, well, could there be cases where persuasion is not your goal? Yeah, I could imagine cases where persuasion is not your goal. But then the question that arises in my mind, well, what would the goal be? And I can think of some answers that make me think that, that uh, you know, yelling or personal attacks would be wrong for a different reason. So one possible reason someone might abandon persuasion and, and, and instead of uh, and, and just start attacking the person verbally might be that they want to, ex to virtue signal. They want to show how righteous they are, that they're going to just scream bloody murder at this person. They kind of vent their, their righteous anger at them. But I sort of wonder, well, what's the point of that? I mean, what's the point of, of showing how righteous you are and how angry you are about this? Um, so I don't know. I guess I, if I could ask you a question back, like what would be, other than persuasion, what would be the other, the other possible purposes? Because at least the ones that come to my mind immediately seem to be like, well, that doesn't seem like a great idea either. That's right. You know, if this year seems to be, seem to be a day for this, um, one would have to have awfully strong reasons to, to not be in dialogue. It would seem that one would have to have, have the reason to think that dialogue is a mm -hmm. But I don't know if that's, a, that's the entire analysis. I'm just wondering if you could help me out there. Yeah, that, no, that's, that's an interesting, interesting point. So the question was, if I... We can rephrase for the, the camera. Um, at least from a Christian perspective, aren't there cases where Jesus uh, doesn't engage in dialogue? I do think there are some cases where, where he does, you know, the woman at the well. And, but there are other cases where he just chases the money changers out of the temple. Um, there's cases where he calls, um, uh, I think it was John the Baptist calling people a brood of, brood of vipers. So no, there's clearly, you know, New Testament figures that are seemingly using uh, invective uh, language and Jesus calls the Pharisees uh, sepulchers, and I mean, so that, so he's he's tough. He's tough on them sometimes. So that seems right. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't want to say it's intrinsically evil that the only mode of you know uh, verbal, the only acceptable verbal mode is persuasion. It seems to me it's not intrinsically evil always to say this or that. And I think in particular, like for instance, with children, parents and children, I think sometimes persuasion is impossible because it's like a five-year-old who can't, you know, it's not even rational really. So, you know, maybe being strict and saying, go to your room is, you know, the right thing, the right thing to do. So yeah, I, I, I'm not, I think that's true. I wouldn't want to make an exceptionless norm, like never use invective, never, ever yell, never, ever, uh, you know, lose your temper and whatever, because 
you know, given uh, the varied circumstances of the world, you could imagine that a person of practical wisdom could, in an unusual, I'd say an unusual circumstance, think the only way to reach through is to really let them have it or something. Yeah, I think that, that's possible. I just think that in general, at least to persuasion is the goal, we, we ought to avoid that. But I'm open to the idea that, yeah, on some occasions, especially if persuasion is not the goal, maybe it would be a good idea to call them a brood of vipers or something. Okay, it's possible. <laughs> um, yes? Yeah, so the question was, if I heard you correctly, that um, as a college student in a liberal environment like the University of Texas, Austin, you're going to receive lots of uh, criticisms and such. And so how can you best form your conscience with respect to the pro-life issue so as to have a good understanding of the issue and be able to converse with people that uh, may see things differently? I think the best book available for kind of what you're talking about is a book, and I'm not trying to remember the title now, it's by Randy Alcorn, um, and it's called something like... That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's by Randy Alcorn. Yeah, it's called Pro-Life Answers to Pro-Choice Arguments or Pro-Choice Objections or something. And it is very thorough. It covers, I mean, all, I think, all the most common objections that are raised on the street, so to speak, to the pro-life view. So if I had to you know, put a single resource in someone's hand, uh, I would say that that is the very best one. Now I would say that there are some philosophical arguments that he doesn't consider, but those philosophical arguments are so unusual for the person on the street to know. I mean, virtually no one would have heard of you know, Jeff McMahon's argument about time relative account of value. I mean, you know, it's like, you're not, unless you run into Jeff McMahon, you're not, no one's gonna ever say that to you. Whereas in the dorm, all the things that would come up in the dorm from just, you know, regular persons uh, are covered in that book. It is really good. It's a terrific book. And it's sold, I forget, I, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. It's super popular. So that's the best book for sure um, in terms of a, a you might say a layperson's guide to, you know, these debates and disputes. It's terrific. And I'm not getting any, you know, he, he didn't pay me to say that. Never even met the guy. Um, yes, sir. Yeah, so the question was, what about a, uh, not an imaginary, but a real life scenario that's similar to the violinist? And that would be the scenario where someone tries to force someone else to give them a bone marrow transplant. So say I'm dying of cancer and I try to force, legally force my brother to give me a bone marrow transplant. And it seems pretty clear that I should not have a right to legally force my brother to give me a bone marrow transplant. And I think that's right. 
I think that one individual should not force another individual to give them their bone marrow. But I think if we accept that principle, then it seems to follow a fortiori that if one individual should not force another individual to give them their bone marrow, well, then one individual should not force another individual to give them their bone marrow, to give them all their organs, to give them all their blood, to give them their very life. But that's exactly what takes place in abortion, right? One individual, the mother, forces another individual to give up not just bone marrow, but everything, all bodily organs, all life, all bone marrow, and their future. So I think the principle actually doesn't support abortion. The principle in question supports the pro-life view. Yes. I have a question that I think I'm afraid it will be the last because um, okay. we're running out of time. Um, the question is, what is the role of young men in this um, dialogue? Because it, it sounds like this has always been an issue, at least for a young woman, or maybe not an adult woman, but um, that it was always a, a discussion between girls. Uh, do I have a right? Do I not have a right? as if men did not contribute to conception at all. Mm -hmm. So what would you suggest to young men that want to get involved? How, what should they say? How should they behave? Yeah, so it takes two, obviously, to tango, and there's no conception that takes place without, well, only one conception that takes place without a human father and a human mother. So I would say that young men, or men of any age, that have a very serious responsibility in terms of abortion. So for instance, what would the number of abortions be in the United States if all men did not have sex prior to marriage? As you probably know, two thirds at least of abortions are to sex outside of marriage. Well, if the men didn't do that, none of those women would be pregnant. And then there's some percentage of abortions that are adulterous affairs. Well, again, if the men didn't do that, none of those abortions would have taken place. And what would happen to the abortion rate if a man found out his, his partner, his girlfriend, his wife, his, you know, the person he had sex with was pregnant, and he said to her, congratulations, honey. I love you. I'm going to love this child. I'm going to support you. Let's get married. We're going to make a family together. We're going to do the best thing that we can for this child. What would happen if every man who got a woman pregnant said that? Well, I have a pretty good guess. There would be a few abortions here and there, but the number would absolutely plummet. It would be almost, you know, negligible. And so, in a sense, I think that it's completely reasonable and justified to take the spotlight off women. Because I think, frankly, if women receive the support that they deserve to receive, especially from the person who gets them pregnant, I think very few women would choose abortion. I really, I'm convinced of that. I think very few women want to get an abortion. In fact, some feminists have said, you know, women want an abortion like, uh, it's not like choosing to get an ice cream cone. They want it as a last resort in a situation that they feel completely desperate, out of control, helpless, hopeless. And they think of it as, you know, your leg's caught in a trap, you got to cut off your leg to get out of the trap. But I don't think women, or as many women at least, would feel that way. Certainly if men, you know, didn't get them pregnant, Right? If, if all pregnancies you know, were in marriage, if all pregnancies were celebrated, if all men uh, showed unconditional love for the person they got pregnant, unconditional love for their, so, their own son and daughter. I mean, after all, this is their child. This is their son or their daughter. It's not just some random thing. 
So if men stepped up to the plate in that sort of way, yeah, I think abortion would be a negligible problem. I want to thank you very much, uh, Professor Kayser, and thanks everyone for uh, being here present and the ones that followed online. And we look forward to having you again. I hope you'll, you'll accept our invitation to Austin once more. Thanks um, to the University Catholic Center again for hosting us. And um, thank you, Father Raya, for, for having us here. Thank you all. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating. And please donate so we can do even more.